1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm privileged to be joined by Matthew Iglesias. He's the co-founder of Vox, co-host of the terrific policy and politics podcast The Weeds, and the author of the 2012 book The Rent is Too Damn High. Now he's preparing for the publication of his second book. It's called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. It's out on Tuesday, September 15th, from Penguin Random House. Matt Iglesias, welcome to the show. Really glad to be here. How's it going? Going well. So I was thinking that usually when someone's out there saying that there's this big problem in the nation, you know, facing us that no one's talking about. Lots of people usually are talking about it, you know, in some in some pockets of academies or whatever else. But maybe that's not the case with with the problem that you're pointing to here. And now and, and you sort of confess here from the start that the notion of proposing that the United States push to triple its population is an idea that right right from the start, you call a little loopy. And so yeah. I'd love to learn more about how, how that idea first came to you. Well, so, you know, OK,
0: so, you know, to be honest, like everyone, I mostly talk about problems that other people are talking about. Um, and one problem <laughs> that people obviously are talking about is international competition with the People's Republic of China. Right. That's a subject that is is frequently under discussion. Uh, people also talk about uh, the cost of childcare a lot. Right. People talk about provision of adequate educational services to American children a lot. Uh, People talk about housing affordability a lot. People talk about um, transportation provision. Uh, You know, we don't commute as much uh, thanks to the pandemic, but hopefully that will (laughs) that will change. Um, So. These are the problems that the book discusses, you know, like anyone, um, I'm not as original as I like to think. And we are talking about problems that are out there. Uh, What One Billion Americans is, though, is it is an original and I think genuinely original frame for thinking about how this all hangs together. And it's to say, look. Instead of saying that we are gonna somehow sabotage Chinese economic growth and make them stay poor, um, what if we uh, rose to the challenge as we have historically, if you look at like who are the most famous presidents, right? George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. What did they say about immigration? They were both eager to get more people to come to the United States. Because they saw we had this great big empty country, we had these really great aspirational ideas, you know, conceived in liberty, all that stuff. But like, were we really going to be able to make it happen? And we were going to need more more people, uh, more people to come here. Uh, So that's one arm of this, right, is thinking about national greatness in the opposite way of Donald Trump. And then the other arm of it is thinking about family life. I think a lot of people don't know this, but The average American woman uh, has fewer children than she says she would like to have. And that's been dropping since 1980 or so. The number of kids that people have has been going down, but the number of kids that people say they would like to have has not been going down and that's because people can't afford childcare people can't afford the other accoutrements, cost of living uh, so the book is about like let's let's solve those problems let's tackle them and if our population grew as rapidly as canada's population is growing i mean i don't know if you've been to canada if listeners mm, are familiar probably, with yeah, canada probably, but it's yeah. a, it's it's like it's fine right i mean you know you, <laughs> <laughs> you can have different slogan, opinions about national it
1: slogan. yeah
0: <laughs> canada we're fine Well, it's the world's most legendarily boring country, right? So... (laughs) Whatever's going on there, like it can't be too crazy. Um, mm-hmm. Canadian level of population growth, that gets us to a billion by the end of the century. Uh, China's population is going down gradually. So it means like we converge with them and we stay number one forever. And I think it's a fun idea. I think it is a little bit of a goofy idea because it, it's good to have too many policy books are boring. Um, this is meant to be a fun <laughs> one, but it's a serious idea. I, I've gotten, you know, uh, as I've been pitching op eds about this, like some people look, drive like, I'm not sure like are you really serious about this and I am serious about it like it's 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 a fun idea but like I think it's a good idea
1: yeah absolutely and and the seriousness comes through even even as the fun does too but I I would say that at the chapter level all of basically all of these topics are recognizably things that that I that I as somebody who reads your work and listens to the podcast you know knows you care about and you think deeply about the overall frame, though. Felt struck me when I saw, first saw the book pitched. I was surprised by it. I was. I don't think Matt Iglesias China hawk, right, as the as the primary identity here. And I wonder, do you think that you need to be a China hawk or an American exceptionalist to get behind the one billion Americans agenda? I mean. You know, what is a China Hawk, right? I
0: I think to a lot. (laughs) No, I mean, because I think to a lot of people, right, I think where we are sliding as a country. I saw Tom Cotton speak at the Republican convention, um, Mm -hmm. and he is definitely a China Hawk. He's also a guy, he's a lead sponsor of a bill that would cut immigration in half. In the United States. And he's certainly not somebody who supports uh, expanded preschool or additional assistance to to low income families. Right. He he's not a one billion Americans guy. He's the the anti one billion Americans (laughs) guy. Like if I have an enemy, it's it's Tom Cotton. But he's a China hawk. Right. And what he means by being a China hawk is, I don't know what, like he's going to say a lot of mean stuff about China. He's going to uh, talk shit about Hunter Biden and mm-hmm. we're going to spend a lot of money on missiles. Um, which is, I, I'm not like a, I'm not a defense guy. You know, I don't know exactly how much money we should be spending on missiles. Uh, but fundamentally I, I, when I was a kid, I've read a book, uh, by Paul Kennedy. It's called the rise and fall of the great powers. Um, and the point he makes that, you know, I think really holds up is that like, why does the United States beat Nazi Germany? Right. And it's like, not because our generals were super smart, or like somehow our like tank building guy was the greatest. Um, You know, there's bravery and incredible strength, courage in the soldiers at war, but America is way bigger than Germany. Like you can't, Germany can't win a war with America. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And you look back at it and you are like, well, like what were they thinking? You know how how could they take that on? And so I would like China hawks to think more seriously about what are the actual sources of national strength. And I would like people who are of a more you know leftish bent um, who aren't naturally inclined to think about these things to ponder the fact that you know we see this. Um, Concentration camps in Xinjiang, incredible crackdown on freedoms in Hong Kong, weird stuff. There was this great Pan America report about how Chinese censors are now dictating to Hollywood what they can show on movies in America. Mm. And like, that's not good. Right, like no, and I don't know anybody. I know people who have different political opinions, but I don't <laughs> know a single person who's like, "Yes, what I want in the future is Chinese censors to be dictating what American content can look like." Like that's mm. not what anyone wants. So, you know, should you be a quote unquote China hawk? I don't know. Um, I think you should if you're on the left. Think about the political value of patriotism and nationalism, and think about the fact that for all the you know very real flaws of the American government and American. American history. Um, there are much worse things out there and we should take that seriously.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And then on the American exceptionalism piece, I also, I found myself wondering as I'm reading the book, I wonder if, you know, if, if he would support hundred million Canadians. And then I got to the acknowledgements and discovered that book's been written.
0: <laughs> yeah. Doug, Doug Saunders wrote that book. I, I was very much inspired by Doug's book. Although he points out that we, we actually, uh, have somewhat different arguments. Um, they, I don't know. He, I, I see them as more similar than he does. Um, So here's what I say about other countries. I am an American exceptionalist in the sense that I am an American, right? Mm -hmm. That is unique. I have a unique relationship to the United States of America, which lets me look at our history and our founding documents and our great historical figures, and it lets me speak, you know, not... um, authoritatively, but with meaning and credibility as to like, what, what is the meaning of America? What is the purpose of America? I can put forward a theory about that. And one billion Americans derives from that theory right? It's exceptional in the sense of my relationship to the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if a Finnish person, you know, asks me something like, well, you know, what do you think we should do about bus networks in Helsinki? Uh, I could give them an opinion. Um, but like, what do I think should be the national identity of Finland? Like, I don't know, you know, like, <laughs> that's, that's up to them, right? And Canada is the same way. Right? So I, I know a little bit about Canada, I was making fun of them before, but I I I took a couple uh, college courses on Canadian politics. And so they fight there all the time about Quebec uh, and the relationship Mm -hmm. of Quebec identity to Canadian identity. And it's all very fraught, right? It's like a big deal there. Uh, So anything they do has to take that into account, right? Um, It just does. And what we do doesn't have to take that into account. We have obviously our own unique legacies and, and issues and, and things like that uh, but so I I speak about America to Americans I think the policy ideas in this book right you know you will see in here uh, studies about immigration ideas about housing ideas about transportation ideas about how to organize a, a social welfare state for children um, that has broad international applicability I think an Australian person a French person a, a Thai person could read this book and say, you know, I've learned a lot about specific areas, Uh, but I wouldn't presume to tell other people like what they should think about their own countries.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so let's, let's get into some, like, let's first talk about who these 600 million plus new Americans are going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Some will be, as you said, the children of adults that right now are choosing not to have as many children as they might like because children, childcare is expensive. And as you and I both know, very exhausting. Um, And the others will be immigrants, right? And so, and one might expect that, To get us to a billion as fast as possible, you'd call to open the borders and and you don't. And you actually see a case for the country to be more selective in its immigration process. But you, you call for that selectivity to be positive and optimistic. So what would that look like?
0: Well, I I say not more selective exactly, but more deliberate, right? So currently, well, there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. stuff happening in the American immigration system. Uh, But one big piece of the American immigration system is people get to apply for visas on behalf of family members. Um, And then their ability to do that is constrained by which country they're from. Right, so if you are an immigrant from uh, Slovenia, right, the way uh, the, the first lady is, mm-hmm. it's quite easy to bring Slovenian relatives over uh, because there aren't very many Slovenian. Uh, people living in the United States. Uh, Whereas if you're from Mexico, it's now quite hard to bring uh, relatives over because there's been a lot of Mexican immigration. Uh, This is a weird system. It has a lot of uh, interesting mathematical properties if you look at it, because basically groups stay very small and they grow and they grow, and then they hit this acceleration point and then it becomes an S-curve. But there's no real... I don't want to say there's no reason for it, but it means that you're sort of running on autopilot, right? So who comes in any given year is a question of happenstance. Uh, We also have a lot of political fights lately about asylum applications, which is another form of happenstance, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. whether or not a person from Nicaragua makes it to the U.S.-Texas border is – you know it has to do with like what smugglers you have, what luck you have with the mexican cartels it's it's very random uh, so what I say in the book is that i I do think critics of the immigration status quo have a point, And that if you move to the kind of system that they use in Canada or in Australia, where they are thinking in a more deliberate way, like what kind of people could we use here? Like a big problem we have in the United States is that our healthcare is so expensive. Um, you know, not just in the like, what does the government pay for, but the, the, the final prices paid are really, really high. And we have the highest earning doctors in the world, but actually a low level of doctors per capita. So, if we can create a system so that foreign trained medical doctors can, I mean, you know, you got to pass a test. I mean, it's important, but like a system where you can show, okay, this is it. Like, I can be a doctor, I can be a dentist. Let me move to the United States and take those people in. Or say, you know, we could use more college graduates in a lot of our Midwestern cities that have kind of deindustrialized, And so maybe people, you know, who, if they're willing to make the deal, say, "Um, yeah, I'd like to come to America. You know, I'll go live in Cleveland for five years. And if Cleveland wants more immigrants, you could let them sponsor people uh, in that kind of way. We should leverage our colleges and universities. A lot of people want to come to them. I think, look, if people... Have the smarts to get into selective American colleges and universities, let them come. And if they can graduate and do coursework, like let them stay, right? Right now, there's incredible complexities around student visas and J1 additional training. And like, mm-hmm. why? Right? We we make it very hard when there's no real objection to, to people like that coming. No nothing other than just like gut level uh, dislike of foreigners uh, would, would keep that away. Um, you know, last but by no means least. I'm just a political realist, you know, like this is a this is a goofy idea um as <laughs> as I said before, like it's weird, right? um, but I think when you look at Immigration. Immigration is just incredibly beneficial. It's really valuable to immigrants, but it's very valuable to the United States as well. Uh, politics underestimates immigration. It underestimates immigrants, and so we just like I'm not a politician. I'm a, I'm a book book writing guy, podcaster, uh, whatever you call it. Um, you know, politicians have to figure out like what works, right? But mm-hmm. what they need to know. Is that more immigrants is good? Uh, that virtually any kind of immigrant would be good, but it's a question of what can they work out with each other, what can they sell to the public, how can they make it work, and we as like intellectuals or you know cosmopolitans should be open minded about what they come up with.
1: Thanks. I, you know, last month at the DNC, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren likened childcare to infrastructure. And I'm reading the book at the time and I'm like, hey, wait a second. So I wonder if you think that's a useful analogy, either conceptually or politically. And how does it square with your vision for childcare?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a good way to think about it. I mean, I, I don't know if it'll work politically because like our infrastructure is terrible. Yeah, right. So to say, to say <laughs> sure. our childcare, it should also be terrible. I don't, I do Childcare don't know. week will um, never
1: come either. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Um, but yes, like on a, on a, you know, I, I, people think about this in education terms, right? I mean, I know a, a big deal in the politics of the American South in the 1990s was that, um, you know, as different states started trying to compete against each other to get like, you know, northern companies to move their offices down to Charlotte or Atlanta or things like that, people realized that they were going to need to level up uh, the quality of their public school systems, right? That people were not going to want to... Put their bank in Charlotte, uh, unless they could tell you know white collar office employees that like there's going to be good public schools here, good state universities here, and you know not every state did that, but the states that have grown a lot and have had a lot of success, they did that, and that's because education is part of infrastructure, um, as, as Senator Warren put it, and the same is true for childcare, right? I mean, if we want to have a country that endures and prospers into the long run, we need uh, mechanisms for children to be taken care of. And I think of childcare quite broadly, right? I mean, one way to mean, okay, we need to care about childcare is like, all right, there's going to be daycare centers, and they're going to have classrooms, and there's going to be professionals there, and people are going to go, and the government will subsidize it. Um, And that's something, like, we should do that. But like, I mean, like, we have to take care of children right so paid parental leave is part of child care uh, just cash assistance to parents of young children so that they can do you know whatever it is they do in a in a flexible way preschool is child care um, after school programming is child care uh, summer something right like right now in america it's like mm-hmm. we have public school which is good cuz well those of us who are dealing with school shutdowns are learning that it's really inconvenient for the adults uh, when the school doesn't exist. But then like, that's what we do during the summer, right? We're just like, Mm -hmm. "Eh, then maybe there won't be a school and you wouldn't do anything else like that. It's not like, well, we don't feel like fighting fires all year round. Uh, We're just going to take a few months off and give you guys all some fire extinguishers to put in your kitchen. Um, So, you know, I I looked into year-round schooling and I I talked to some experts and, you know, the literature on that is actually quite mixed. And so I I became less of a year-round schooling advocate than I thought I might be. But it's like, we've got to do something, right? Like there could Mm -hmm. be vouchers to go to camps. There could be, the city could organize. There's a lot of things you could do, but like right now we're doing nothing, right? For kids under four, we're doing nothing. Uh, For kids during the summer, we're doing nothing. Um, Nothing is not the right answer to the question of how (laughs) should we care for children. I think everybody knows that it's not the right answer. Uh, So people on the right who don't think of themselves this way, but they have essentially fallen into a really hardcore libertarian trap where everyone knows that something has to be done with these kids, but there's no public provision for what should be done. So the conservative view in effect is, well, you just shouldn't have kids. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a luxury consumption good. Uh, it's a luxury mm-hmm. consumption good whose price goes up in relative terms over time because it's labor intensive. So just fewer and fewer people should have kids and especially working class people should not have any children at all. Right. Um, and they're no, I, yeah,
1: right. Yeah.
0: no, I don't think that's what conservative people think. In a way, like if you think of, I think about like people I know, you know, like, like like regular church going people, like people who have flags a lot and get annoyed by the 1619 project. Mm-hmm. Um, these are like not actually people who think, well, the future of America should be that we just wither away and die as a society. Uh, but that's what their policy trajectory is leading us to. Uh, while progressives are like much more open to the idea that like, yes, we have to do something about this. But then they get like really fussy about the particulars, you know, and it has to be like targeted in just such a way. So the help is only going to people who really need it. And it has to be like full-time program daycare that has demonstrated educational benefits. Like the answer can never just be that like, well, it's nice for people to be able to have families and children need someplace safe to go in the summer. Uh, So You know, I kind of feel like there should be a meeting of the minds here where instead we have this, this dead zone and it's unfortunate.
1: Let's talk about where all these people will go. You yeah. include this staggering statistic in the book that a quarter of the nation's counties are losing population right now. Is that, yes. right, that right, I think? And, and especially, you know, you're know you especially seeing the departure of prime age workers out of these places. Mm-hmm. And you talk about you know notorious cases that people know about Detroit and St. Louis is even worse than Detroit, you say, uh, as far as the, the percentage of folks that have been uh, leaving. But you also mentioned that there's a, just a ton of long tail towns and cities in the Rust Belt, industrial Northeast, and including my own hometown, Lewiston, Maine, we've lost Fifteen percent of the population in the last mm-hmm. half century. I mean, that's and that's that's not you know that's that's with thousands of smaller refugees um, moving up from the southeast to uh, to find a place to raise their kids. Um, or my last guest on, on the show a couple weeks ago was Carrie Arsenal, who's from Rumford, Maine, wrote a memoir about environmental health and, and the mill town there. And you know, and she mentions in the book that the, you know there's a mill worker she interviewed who's fifty four, and this is you know this is the this is the one game in town this mill the paper mill, and he's fifty four and he's referred to as a kid. And that uh-huh. half of the employees are expected to retire in the next five years. And I remember being home for my mom's funeral, which was a devastatingly sad event. But the one of the saddest moments was was seeing the the, f- the f- parent of a childhood kind of playmate up the street, and he said, "There just aren't there any kids in here anymore. There's no children around." So this whole landscape uh-huh. that I was used to of being full of bike riding and you know walking to school and all that is just gone. And even in this, even though the, all the buildings are there, everything seems the same. But but it's just de- it's just deeply sad. And and you see promise in kind of the available capacity of these. Deindustrialized places, um, but how do we yeah. ensure that a boom of immigrants or that young Americans have kids? How do we ensure they go to these places and not just the Sun Belt and the big cities?
0: Right. Well, so one thing that I do think is is relevant, right, is that the total level of population growth matters, right. I bet if, you know, if you look at a place like Lewiston, um, if, if you look at, you know, even smaller towns, because, uh, you know, Lew- Lewiston's a mill yeah. town, uh, but, but small, small towns in general um, that exist out there, it is, as far as I know, always been the case in human history, like literally always, go back to 6,000 BC, um, that people leave the countryside and move to cities, right? Like on net. Um, yeah, but yeah. how many people there are becomes a factor there. Right. So it's like if there's three children per family and half a kid on average moves to the big city, then the small town is also growing. Right. But if there's one kid Mm. on average, then the small Mm -hmm. town is shrinking very rapidly. Um, And then as it starts to shrink, it becomes depressive right like i i grew up in manhattan so mm-hmm. people can easily caricature me as like just like a big city person uh, but i'm not like an idiot like small small towns are really nice you know and people have different preferences but like i totally understand why people uh, like them um I, I i've been to many small towns they're charming <laughs> um but shrinking towns are not as charming you know what i mean like half empty school buildings or like main streets where a quarter of the store windows are shuttered. Like that's not nice. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not what people want when they say they want to live in a small town. They want to live in like a nice town with stuff happening. Um, and in particular like raising children is one of the big comparative advantages of small towns, right? Like, um, you know, people talk now, you know, I, I live in the city, and I know people who move to the suburbs, and and blah blah blah. But like the place that really captures what people sort of like want aspirationally out of not being in a big city for children is that small towniness, right? Like the sense that there's a community that people know each other, that you could trust your kid to like go down to the store uh, because the guy who runs it knows who the kids are who live in town. Like that's all really cool, right? And it's small towns. Mm -hmm. That suffer the most, I think, from having such a low population uh, dynamic. Every once in a while, someone usually like a conservative person will do a story about how funny it is that there there are so many more dogs than children in Seattle. Um, But (laughs) big cities actually function as like playgrounds for childless people. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I I don't think it's like Mm -hmm. the optimal social situation, but like it works, right? The streets are just filled with bars and people are drunk and, you Mm -hmm. know, they go on Tinder and they walk their dogs um, and it's fine. But it's like small towns, I I feel like almost like definitionally, like need families and and children. Like that's what they're for um, in in some sense. Uh, So- I sh- guess I should answer your actual question. Part of it is that like I think if the ambient population growth rate is higher, people naturally gravitate into small towns. Uh, but I also think that we should target towns for immigration, right? Um obviously the influx of Somali refugees to Lewiston has not been an uncontroversial thing. Um But if you look at it, like it's been good for Lewiston, Uh, you know, um, it's, it's, it's much better than Lewiston is much better off than like Rumford or Mm -hmm. Millinock or other mill towns that don't have people coming into them. And, you know, we should get more of that because you look at like, you know, a hard luck city, right? Like Buffalo, New York. Um, And so Mm -hmm. why is Buffalo losing people? Well, It's just like, it's cold in Buffalo. It's very cold. cold. Um, And it's a city, but it's not like an amazing alpha world city. So the job opportunities there, like, they're okay. You can get some jobs, but they're not great. So it's like, well, why would anybody move to Buffalo? And they don't, you know, just like some people bleed away in any given year because it's cold. Rochester is cold. Syracuse is cold. Elmira is cold. Erie, pennsylvania is cold these are just cold cities um At the same time, you look in a global context, these are like some of the best places in the whole history of humanity for a person to live. There are so many people whose lives could be improved by moving to Buffalo or Rochester or Syracuse. And Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse could be improved by having more people move to them. So it's just a question of like crafting a political solution so that people have the opportunity to do that. And they don't all need to be refugees from Somalia. Um, They can be from anywhere, you know, like the the incomes earned by middle class people in Argentina uh, are just much lower than what's typical in the United States, and you know, would they give it up? Uh, access to wine and and all that for uh, Elmira, I don't know, but some of them would, right? Um, and so like we should see these things. As not blighted towns, but as incredible assets that like have the rule of law and access to the American domestic marketplace, and frankly, like they have cheap houses, they have land that's available. Uh, in many cases, they have infrastructure in terms of roads and airports that's underutilized rather than overutilized. Um, my thinking on all this was really shaped uh, by the first time I went to Cleveland, um, which is I don't know. It's like not depopulated enough to like get into stories the way Detroit does, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it has so much, um, there's so much world-class stuff in Cleveland, Uh, you know, including like great museums, great theater system, what was once upon a time, like a big international hub airport, Uh, but they're all kind of shrinking away you know it's like people leave so the airlines leave the airport so it suddenly becomes not a good place to have a corporate headquarters so the donors to the museum aren't there you know and it's like you you see a great city kind of wasting away for no particular reason other than that the weather isn't so great and you see other places though like boston or stockholm uh, which also have shitty weather uh, but they're growing and thriving and rich and like we can we can do that You know, by giving more people the opportunity to participate in these cities, it's good for them. It's good for the cities. And then once you get into a growth dynamic rather than a shrinkage dynamic, like that helps your airport, it helps your restaurants, it helps your museums, and then your desirable place to live again that has the kinds of things that make people excited about your city. Uh, Your small town like has a store in it, so now it's a nice town to live in instead of just a place that's empty. Uh, You go, you you go. Back home, and you see people raising kids there, and you think, ah, oh, you know, maybe we should move back home. Um, and like that's that's what we need in America. But instead, we're stuck because our growth rate is so low in this kind of zero sum scramble for people. So every single person who moves to the suburbs of Phoenix is like a social crisis for the entire Midwest, and <laughs> and that's what we need to get out of.
1: That brings us to this question of urban land use, which is a topic you've been exploring for a long time. and It's one of those subjects that seems outwardly very boring, but of course it's fascinating, <laughs> it determines how all of our lives are shaped and all that. But um, I'm reading that chapter and and my friend Garrett Nelson, who's a, at the Boston Public Library and is a historian of urban and regional planning, was tweeting out at the same time about how you know because zoning was one of the only forms of land use control that was deemed constitutional by the Supreme Court, Zoning has long made these strange political bedfellows. You got these lefty urban reformers who are trying to rein in industrial excess, he says, and then you also have elite development companies that are concerned mm-hmm. about residential character. And so, I wonder if you could help us bring us up to speed for those of us who don't think deeply about zoning and urban land use, you know, where are the politics today, you know, and 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 where do they need to be to support your agenda?
0: It's always shifting, you know. I mean, an interesting thing about zoning is that traditionally it did have something to do with the location of uh, industrial uses. Um, and Mm. the extent to which that's just like not true now is like really striking and important. Um, because the, for one thing, like people don't, are not that enthusiastic about putting factories in the United States, but beyond that, like the transportation modalities are, are just completely different. Like nobody wants to put a factory in the middle of a city. I, I once met a guy on an airplane, um, guy with like a big cowboy hat and, and he asked him what I was doing. And I said, I was going to do a, a book talk about my, my earlier book about zoning. And he was like, boy, you'd love Houston. I could put a nickel plant, nickel smelting plant right across the street from a school. And ain't nothing uh-huh. nobody could say about it. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it. And I was like, that's, that's stupid. I, uh, <laughs> but nobody puts nickel smelting plants next to public schools in Houston. anyway. right. Uh, it's, it's just not a, an actual issue. Um, so what you have instead Pre- – President Trump was uh, describing this in his usual delicate way on, on mm-hmm. Twitter, which is that you have people who are living the suburban dream lifestyle mm-hmm. in their single-family neighborhoods, and only single-family detached homes are allowed to be built there. And that um, uh, keeps the streets you know, low traffic, uh, little noise, and it also means that only people who – you know, a similar income and wealth level as them are able to move to the neighborhood. Uh, and this has always been a big part of zoning. There's a great paper called The Racial Origins of, of American Zoning. And, you know, early in the, the land use days, people had this idea and they'd say, oh, well, we'll just make a rule that black people can't live in this part of town. Um, and the Supreme Court said, like way before Brown v. Board of Education, they said, no, 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 buddy, you can't do that. <laughs> um you, you you can't do that. You, uh, segregate the schools if you want, but people can live where they want. Uh so city started hiring consultants to come up with race neutral zoning codes that would in practice uh exclude African Americans from parts of the city that they wanted them excluded from and would at that time put undesirable uses uh like water treatment plants things like that in the African American neighborhoods. Um, so almost every old American city is shaped by that. And there's like some local story you can get. And people will oftentimes make it a story about that particular place. Like, oh, it's the secret history of Baltimore. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. the secret history of every place. And the history is the same every place. Um, and so you always know it, right? So it's like in D.C., well, the Northwest, that's mm-hmm. where the affluent white people live. Um, in uh, different cities, I think in, I think in San Antonio, it's like the north is, is the white part of town and the east is black in the South and West or Latino. Uh, but everything's like that. There's always a side. Um, and, and people will think there's some particular reason for it. But it's just like they sat down, they drew up a map, uh, and they decided this is where different kinds of people should live. So what we need to do now is let people build uh, more stuff, more uh, townhouses or mid-rise apartment buildings uh, in the neighborhoods that are expensive, uh, so that more people can fit into them. Uh, there's more to housing policy than just that, um, but that would be a revolutionary change. Like it, it's it's just like one sentence, uh, but it's real. <laughs> it's, it's like if land is really really expensive in a given place, it's not like all the houses need to be torn down and we have to have apartment buildings. But you should be allowed to put up an apartment building there so that the high cost of the land can be shared across multiple families and you just unlock incredible potential for more people to live in in in-demand places.
1: There's a, uh, you know, we've talked about who these new people are going to be, where they're going to live. Um, and now we should address some of the problems that people might imagine would, would crop up because of all these new people. Yeah. Um, and there's always a temptation when talking about solving problems in the future to kind of say, we'll just, you know, dream big about technologies and we'll just innovate mm-hmm. our way out of there and we'll, and innovation does play a role in your book. You know, for one, you suggest that just having more people in the country is going to get you more innovation. That's more lottery tickets to get an Einstein. That's also ne- mm-hmm. their network effects and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, and then you also say you'd like to see some investment in, in tackling some daunting problems, like like we'd love to see somebody build an electric plane or an electric container ship, but you also draw the line. And you, you know, we have Elon Musk out here drumming up excitement for supersonic tunnels or what have you. And but yeah. you, don't, you don't see this as kind of as, as very a good use of resources right now. With, with transportation especially, you say we have to just get back to basics. What does that mean?
0: Right. Well, so, you know, America's good at innovation, uh, which is great. It's like one of the best things about America. And so people, Americans tend to look to innovation to solve problems, uh, which sometimes it it can and should. And so like Elon Musk has through innovation solved the really important problem of like, how do you build an electric car that like car guys will be excited about? Um, mm-hmm. And that's like hard, right? And like genuinely nobody had done that before. Then he wants to take his same innovation magic and be like, well, how do you build a tunnel? Um, but it turns out that like, this is not that hard of a problem. I don't know how to build a tunnel. I I will (laughs) tell you, I'm like a a policy guy. I I look stuff up and I talk to people. Uh, But in America, building tunnels costs like staggering sums of money. Uh, But like in France and in Sweden, they build tunnels for way less money. And in Spain and Italy and South Korea, they build tunnels for even less money uh, than the French and, and the Scandinavians. So... I mean, it would be great to have like some whole other magical way to do it. But the fact is that like we are not at the state of the art there. We do not manage our transportation systems as well as the best countries of Europe and Asia. And we don't manage our transportation infrastructure construction as well as they do. And, you know, what Americans need to do is learn uh, from the people who are actually at the state of the art. Uh, We need to, in some cases, like literally hire them. uh, the, the COVID, like, wiped this out of the headlines, but the craziest <laughs> thing happened in New York uh, in the year or so before COVID, which is that the subway, after ailing for all these years, the governor brought in a guy who had ran large foreign subway systems, right? Because, like, everybody knows that the United States of America – like. We're the greatest country on earth. Absolutely. That's my book. There's like pictures of flag on it. We are not the greatest country on earth when it comes to urban mass transit. Right. So they got a foreign guy who had worked (laughs) in London and Toronto. And they were like, why don't you try to make this better? And it worked like the New York subway was getting way better. And then people were giving him Andy Byford is his name. uh, People were giving him like too much credit. And the governor got sad because he wanted credit. So they wound up having a breakup and he got fired. And that's like a tragedy. It's literally illegal for Amtrak to hire a CEO who's uh, not a US citizen. but like why would you think that the best person to run a passenger train would be an American? (laughs) Like our passenger trains are garbage. Um, So what we always wind up doing is hiring an airline guy because our airlines are fine. So they're at least like, but they don't know anything about trains. And so it doesn't make sense, right? It's like, go to Japan, go to France, go to Spain, like anyone who's traveled, like you've seen better trains, like find one of those people, hire them, right? Lots of people speak English. That's not a hard problem to solve. Uh, So that's my sort of basic view on on transportation is that – we have a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can pick there. Um, innovation very important in life. I, I write about innovation in the book. Innovation, in the energy sector is obviously critical, or else we're uh, really kind of screwed as a uh, species. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm not against innovation, but it's like let's innovate where the state of the art is genuinely not good enough. Uh, when there's just better stuff, like let's just copy.
1: So this is an environmental podcast, nominally, and everything you've been saying concerns Yeah, I thought the I was going to get some
0: get some tough questions here. Here That's we go, a- man!
1: I'm coming for you now. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, mainstream environmental is not as obsessed with population as it as it once was, or for, you know, for the second half of the 20th century, or no, even you before. never you never
0: know, though. You find no. certain oh, corner yeah. certain corners of are, the <laughs> internet. Yeah. Yes, the
1: people, the people that still are concerned are very concerned, and there's <laughs> yes. you know there's those that are worried at, at the global level, certainly, in the in sort of the Paul Paul Ehrlich mode, which you know, is tinted with more or less a lot of racism, and then there's also folks like you know Gaylord Nelson, the Wisconsin senator. You know, was the founder of Earth Day, but in his last decades, he was talking about you know restricting immigration because we don't, we can't we don't have room for people. It's gonna it's gonna be a stress on on America's environment yeah. and, and broadly yeah. conceived, and 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 largely, I don't know, environmental justice folks and others have, have kind of poked a lot of holes in that. And I think and at least there's people usually pause before making these claims now, at least. But I'm sure there's still going to be plenty of people that read the back of your book. No, are. Who, show who are already happening, right? And, and they'll have these knee-jerk responses. And so I wonder if we could just do a lightning round of yeah. some responses to sort of knee-jerk environmentalist concerns. Um, and maybe the first one is that more people, more Americans, will threaten the nation's supply of natural resources.
0: Yeah, so I... There, there's like a whole di- bunch of different levels on which population environment conversation intersects. Um, the most basic one is like, okay, literally, do we have the ecological capacity for more people? And I think obviously, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you triple our population, we are about as dense as France, uh, excluding Alaska, we're as dense as France, about half as dense as Germany, uh, nowhere near as dense as England or, or Belgium. Um, so, you know, Your baseline, I view, should be, yes, like America can hold more people. Then you look in details. Um, America has a lot of fresh water per capita, even if we triple the population. Uh, So there's no problem there. Um, It's true. We have a big mountain range in the West. Some people say, well, you can't compare us to France because we've got all these mountains. Uh, Switzerland has a lot of mountains um, and is much more than three times as dense as as the United States. Um, Then another concern people have is just like, okay, nature. Right. Like, will we have the bounty of nature? I've been going be- because of the pandemic, you know, I've been taking my kid like every Saturday on, on different nature trails out someplace. Again, mm-hmm. there's a lot of nature in, in Switzerland. Uh, go see it. They got mountains, they got trees. Um, if you look at how nature, uh, I don't know how to put it, how, how sort of like preservation works in the United States, right? The federal government owns huge tracts of land in the West. Um, And then conservationists and environmentalists mostly fight with uh, timber companies and ranchers uh, and and, uh, stuff like that, right? And so that's the margin that we're operating on with our sort of not inhabited landscape is should we use this as like parks and preserves or should we be using it to drill for oil? Um, The book as an official book does not have a position on that personally (laughs) i am on the environmentalist side i just like it's it's another book you know but so it's like Mm -hmm. yeah like don't drill in the alaska national wildlife wet don't turn the utah whatever into a cobalt mine like there's there's no need to do that Uh, but none of that stuff is about population right like if the united states only had seven people in it there would still be guys who own oil companies saying we should drill everywhere right? Mm -hmm. Because the amount of oil we drill and the amount of cobalt we mine and everything else, the amount of timber we chop down is not, uh, constrained by our domestic capacity to consume. Right. And you look at our, our next door neighbors in Canada again, like that's a really empty ass country. Um, but they're certainly not devoid of, uh, fossil fuel extraction. You know, they're just selling it, selling it abroad. Um, so we can have nature, uh, we can have, um, you know, we, we can all have drinking water. Uh, the, the hard question is carbon dioxide emissions, right? Mm. Um, America is a very rich country. If people come here from poor countries, right? If, if somebody moves here from Honduras, uh, their emissions go up, um, they go up quite a bit, uh, because not because Honduras is like an environmental success story, but because Honduras is so poor, right? And being poor, um, it's not really an environmental success story, but it is a CO2 emissions success story. Poverty mm-hmm. is is very good for keeping emissions down, um, and so if if we have a more prosperous world because more people come here, there's going to be more emissions, and that's not great. At the same time, I do think you have to ask yourself, like, what what solutions are we putting on the table uh, for the problem of climate change? Because if the solution is well. We're going to put some more solar panels up and we're going to try to use electric cars and we're also going to hope that billions of people around the world stay trapped in dire poverty forever. Um, that's not really much of a solution, right? Even if you can make it work mathematically, uh, it's – well, it, it's sort of immoral. Um and it also just doesn't work, right? Like, they're not going to do it. Uh, Vietnam is not going to stop trying to get cars for people or, you know, factories and, and generate electricity, things like that. So, you know, I think a real solution to the climate challenge, and I think this is why people have drifted toward the kind of Green New Deal concept, is a acknowledgement from diverse political stakeholders that the solution really does have to be innovation Oriented that we have on the electricity side, I think now solutions, right? Um, Renewable power, like it works. Uh, We can build that stuff. We have built a lot and like we just got to build more. And that's a question of putting money into it, putting the regulations into it. Electric cars work, you know, we got to just make more people use them. Uh, So that's great. We can make incredible progress there. But then we have these hard problems, right? Like there is no carbon neutral way to make cement. Uh, There's no carbon neutral way to make steel. There's no carbon neutral way to uh, fly to Los Angeles. And it is really hard to imagine a world in which we like don't have uh, things made out of metal uh, and in which nobody goes to Los Angeles. Uh, And we're going to need, I I don't think, I mean, look, I I don't know who listens to this podcast. Uh, There are some, there are some like very pastoralist minded people there who say Mm -hmm. like, it's fine. Like we'll just we'll just do without, right? Like people will live in wood cabins and I don't know what. Um, we'll drive our Priuses to see each other locally. Uh, but I don't like. I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's like a real politics. I don't think that's where environmental minded elected officials are taking the conversation. They're mm-hmm. saying like we need to deploy the clean solutions that we have and we need to push on finding the clean solutions of tomorrow. Can we do that? Like, I don't know, it's, it's another book. Uh, But if we could, right? Like if you had, if you could electrify everything and then you could generate the electricity cleanly, um, then you could support as many people as you want. Right. Like that's, that's the goal is to create sustainable modes of living, not tell people like, well, we're going to solve this problem by not having any human beings here. Uh, so that's, that's one answer to the question. Uh, then I also have a, there's a whole other set of issues about, um, sort of historic preservation and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, like doing more, doing less. Right. But if you think about just like the entire stock of everything in America, um, from a sustainability standpoint, it's like it's almost all got to go. Like our buildings are not insulated well enough. They're not connected to the right kind of heating systems. Like if you take the climate challenge really, really seriously, uh, which, I, which I think people should, especially if they want to complain about my book, uh, they should take it <laughs> extremely seriously. Um, you've sort of got to like level almost everything and replace it with different stuff um which is it's like mind-bending to think about it right because it's like you can read an article in like one magazine like oh this passive house that's so cool um so what would it take it's like well we could build some more of them but like well where would they go like all the billion americans questions come up and it's like well where would they go well do you want to put them in the middle of the existing wilderness probably not right that's not very environmentalist so you got to put them where the existing houses are uh but that's it doesn't just cost money it's completely illegal. You, you can't just like level neighborhoods and put up new kinds of buildings in them. So we need to change all that stuff. Um, it's not to say you also have to have a billion Americans, but there's actually this incredible uh, parallelism between the agendas uh, because they both involve essentially fully renewing America's infrastructure and built environment, which is incredibly hard it's like it's like staggering like how, how will we do that politically uh but but like i i want us to be friends i'm sitting here in my my warehouse neighborhood see i've been wrangling with the historic preservation board for like <laughs> months about getting solar panels on my roof i was told i couldn't put the most energy efficient kind of windows in uh, because my windows need to look old and um uh, that's fine i guess but like If you want the future to be different, if you want it to be better, right, if you want it to be more equal, if you want it to be more just, if you want it to be more sustainable, um, well, things have to look different, right? And we have Mm -hmm. so many jurisdictions ostensibly controlled by progressive people who have, like, literally written into law that, like, no, things – nothing – everything has to look the same. Everything has to look like old stuff. Uh, but like the old stuff, like we know what the old stuff did, right? Like it's too much pollution. It's too much inequality. Like we need different stuff and it's got to look different.
1: I wonder, um, you know, I wonder if an environmentalist who reads the opening of the book where you say that we really need a grand national project to help us mm-hmm. get over, you know, kind of escape the gravity of partisan squabbling and, and and really do big stuff again in the spirit of Washington and Lincoln and all this, I, uh, I can imagine some folks that would say, well, isn't that what the Green New Deal is? Isn't it meant to be? Let's let's solve the climate challenge and tackle inequality at the same yeah. time. And I wonder, are you just is this is this a Green New Deal of people that are less you know, for people that are for, with a better politics that's more likely to kind of be partisan or what, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean my mine is better. I, <laughs> I don't
1: can make a lot of friends that way. Great. I'm
0: very much uh, you know, I'm 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 very much in sympathy uh, mm-hmm. with, with with the Green New Deal project. Um, but yeah, like, I don't think that they, I, I think when you look at it, I mean, the climate crisis is both very bad and also not quite the same kind of threat to the nation qua nation uh, that they sort of want to make it out to be. Um I think it is much easier to like get things done. Well, I should say easier to get things done. Climate is an inherently international problem, right? Mm-hmm. And the Green New Deal uh, frames it as primarily a domestic one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need less... I, I want to choose my words carefully here. Of course. Uh, yeah, you, no. you, you, you think about FDR, right? Mm-hmm. So for several years, he he says like, at, at a certain point in his term, it's like, Dr. New Deal has to give way to Dr. Win the War, hmm. right? Because he pivots. It's World War II. Um, mm-hmm. And what we're really talking about in climate change is more like a green world war, or mm-hmm. to be more uh, less uh, bloodthirsty, a green uh, Marshall Plan, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not just about like us, right? And in some ways, it's not primarily about us. Uh, we're not even close to being the world's top climate emitter anymore. Um, so we have to think about like, how how is this supposed to work, right? In a global context. And that does mean innovation is one of the biggest ways we can contribute, right? Like if you came up with like a cold fusion box, I mean, <laughs> good for you. You can quit the podcast. Um, but also like people all, like Indian people would love to use that, right? Like you wouldn't need to coerce them if we actually invented some, some better stuff. So that's like one of the best things we can do. Uh, the other thing is that right now, All of our climate discussions with China and with other sort of rapidly industrializing countries are poisoned by the suspicion that the United States has a kind of hidden agenda of keeping them poor, Mm -hmm. right? And Americans think that's absurd. Um, But also, Americans are not like, our political leaders aren't like, and here's how we're going to adapt to a world in which the United States is a second-rate power, Um, So the Chinese are correct to look at that and kind of squint and be like, wait a minute, is their plan to keep us poor? Is this stuff just an excuse? When they say, you know, when when Trump says Huawei, you know, we can't trust their network switches, are Mm -hmm. they just trying to kneecap our technology? And Barack Obama shows up complaining about our coal plants. Are they trying to kneecap our electricity? So, you know, one thing that I think is helpful is to say, look, like, this is a plan for America. This is our strategy of, like, national renewal, whatever, whatever. And, like, we wish you all the best. Like, we're just going to be number one because we're so awesome. Um, it's got nothing to do with you. Um, and now we can cooperate on these international challenges from a genuine standpoint of cooperation because, like, we don't want to see like New Orleans underwater uh, any more than like Bangladesh wants to be underwater. So let's let's work together on it.
1: So, G Matt, all this stuff sounds really expensive, and I'm wondering how you're going to pay for it. There was oh uh, man, yeah, that's
0: <laughs> that, that, that's where me and the Green New Deal are absolutely of, of mind. It's, <laughs> it's really like it's the worst question. I mean, like I. I could show you, right? It's like we can do the math um, and the dollars, uh, but you've really got to think about like resources, right? Because you could say some of the stuff, we, we were talking climate. It's like, well, like what, what, what would it cost uh, to give everybody, um, you know, whatever, uh, to, 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 to make an electric plane that I could take to San Francisco? Uh, mm-hmm. The answer it would cost nothing. Because like, it doesn't exist, you know what I mean. Like it, we can't do it. Or people can say Trump was saying it to State of the Union is like, well, we're going to go to Mars, and like maybe we will go to Mars. Maybe we should go to Mars. Uh, you can certainly drop a budget, right? Say like this is how much money we're going to give NASA to try to get to Mars. Uh, but they can't tell you how much it costs to go to Mars because they don't know how to go. Right? Like it's you're you're into the unknown, um, and so th- those are hard problems uh, that need to be solved other kinds of problems um can we afford uh to have more people doing childcare work uh, like yes obviously we have 10 percent unemployment we're not mm-hmm. we're not like short of people um do we as a society have the ability to like build some more uh uh little winky dink buildings for the daycare centers to be in like yes like we could do that there's no there's no relevant shortage um because at the same time, people will sometimes say, like, well, um, we're gonna have kiosks uh, that replace all our retail workers and there's gonna be mass unemployment um, so okay even better than that we can like have a whole new uh, renewed care industry and things for people to do um, can we afford to build cost-effective transportation systems like yes of course we can like if we have good uh, technical means of doing it it has net economic benefits um, immigration is incredibly economically beneficial uh, in the longer run uh, having more people gives us more human resources resources to go do things with. So, you know, long story short, um, we probably have to raise taxes at some point. Yeah, that is true, but it's, I'm talking about doing things with resources that clearly exist and resources that are in fact abundant. Um, the, the biggest thing you need to execute the 1 billion Americans agenda is, uh, unskilled and semi-skilled labor uh which we have plenty of and we have people clamoring around the world to come here and provide more of it uh so we can go we can go get that done i actually think the challenge is to everyone who doesn't want one billion americans it's like how do we afford military competition with an asian country that has four times our population Mm -hmm. like how is that supposed to work over the long run um like I don't know. Yeah, I mean maybe there's a way to do it, right? We could become just like this most like insanely militarized place in the universe. Um, it's you know, like a robot uh, it, army
1: or something. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. you look like Israel obviously maintains itself from a, you should never bring up Israel unless you're ready for a political fight. Um It's a <laughs> we're little the, country we okay. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of people living in Israel. Uh, Compared to the population of like Egypt and Syria. And they they managed to hold their own uh, with like conscription and all this foreign aid. But like, it's a really big deal. Um, And America is like giant. We shouldn't have to we shouldn't have to live like that. Uh, Let's just get get some more people here.
1: During the uh, Democratic primary season, which was four or five years ago, um, yeah. I remember you and Ezra Klein would often kind of express a lot of consternation that, you, that candidates would never be candid about about their priorities when it came to issues—not just their stances, but which yeah. you know, you know, best case scenario, you get two years of control of Congress, maybe if you're if you're lucky, and maybe you can push through some big legislation, but you don't get that many you don't get that many bites at the apple. And so, if a presidential transition team, or I suppose if the Trump administration, read your book, totally got totally on board the Billion Americans Mm -hmm. agenda, um, which piece of it, and granted, lots of this has to happen at different levels of government, but which piece of it would you like to see them start with?
0: Uh, I mean, I think probably immigration, just because it's such a political hot button. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be great to see a different way of thinking about immigration. I mean, I'm trying to like reframe the whole like, Like, what is the immigration debate even about? Um, So, you know, that's that's what I would love to see. I mean, that's not my sincere political advice to Joe Biden, because he look, if you're taking over in the midst of like there's a pandemic and there's double digit unemployment, like you have to address that. You know, that that's just life. Um, Mm -hmm. But but in my sort of like conceptual sequencing of the book. Right, is I would have people say, okay, like we are going to address progressives' humanitarian concern about the undocumented population. And we're going to address conservatives' concerns about national identity, but we're going to reframe what those concerns are in terms of national greatness. And we are going to totally rethink how the immigration system works and what it is for. And we are also going to create a path to citizenship for these 11 million people instead of this huge, uh, counterproductive deportation apparatus. Uh, And then with that in place, it's like, okay, we're now in the new politics, right? We're in the new politics of growth and greatness and all this other stuff, right? The childcare, the housing, the transportation, uh, that's like a thousand cuts, right? That sort of has to be adapted. But it's once you have the growth mindset, like everything else kind of flows from that.
1: And you said, you know, with COVID putting things off, but also, I mean, you mentioned with childcare, for instance, and unemployment, you know, there's, there are pieces of this that could be part of, forgive me, building back better.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a different view of this, which is like, okay, so you have like a build back better reconciliation act of Mm -hmm. uh, 2021. And, you know, I would just put in there like housing assistance, childcare funding, Uh, I would turn the child tax credit into a, um, what you would call it, uh, a ch- universal child allowance. Um, so th- th- there's good stuff there, right? Like I, 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 it's not how I would conceptually sequence things, but given the actual political realities, uh, if uh, you know Joe listens to this podcast, um, I would just like try to smuggle as much family support stuff as possible in there because it all works as economic emergency relief and as sort of pandemic emergency measures. But it is also stuff that would be worth doing on a permanent basis.
1: The book, again, is One Billion Americans. It's uh, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Its author is Matthew Iglesias. You can hear him on his podcast, The Weeds, every Tuesday and Friday. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Iglesias, and you can read him at Vox.com. But most importantly, you can pre order this book or the audio version, which he performs. Uh, Both are out on Tuesday, September 15th. I'm Brian Hamilton. This has been New Books in Environmental Studies. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.